When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Worst Year Ever, a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through together or not. Everything is so dumb, 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 dumb. Welcome back to Worst Year Ever. My name's Katie Stoll. Uh, today we have a very special guest, Mark Cuban. Uh, and uh, the boys, Sophie and I, chatted with him for a very long time. And uh, that's what we're presenting for you guys today. I will give you a quick disclaimer. There were some audio issues. Uh, and we are we are addressing them, but you're... You love us, and you're going to roll with the punches, I think. Um, cool. Anyway, here we go. Um, so, yeah, Mark, thank you for being here uh, and talking to us. Uh, a little background. So about, I don't know, many months ago, I uh, responded to some of your tweets, and then we had a little back and forth, <laughs> and that was fun. Uh, and then we did a little DMs. I believe I asked you if you would give me money a bunch of times. <laughs> um, and uh, we ended up, uh, we talked about, like, you know, uh, capitalism, socialism, a lot of different things, um, which I think we... The best line, Cody, was something like, well, you got so much, just give me some, right? Just <laughs> give me some money. I mean, that logic seems sound to me. Uh, but uh, So I think we do disagree on a lot of things. Um, so, uh, we'll probably get into that, but, um, we also will, you know, we'll talk about, uh, all the things that you've done, uh, recently and in general from your position. But, uh, on that note, uh, we sort of wanted to open up, uh, about the, the sort of larger question that we, I think, got into a little bit, 
where um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, as we all know who she is, um, her senior counsel and policy advisor, Dan Riffle, uh, changed his Twitter name to Every Billionaire is a Policy Failure last year. In September of 2019, Bernie <laughs> Sanders wrote, there should be no billionaires. We are going to tax their extreme wealth and invest in working people. Uh, both Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez are extremely popular with young Americans. And in general, just that idea that the billionaire class should be reduced or eliminated via economic reform is increasingly popular. So we're sort of curious how it feels to hear that and how you feel about the sentiment that people being able to accumulate your level of wealth is part of what's wrong with our society. Well, I mean, look, I've been poor. I've been, mm -hmm. you know, had my lights turned off. I've had my credit cards cut. I've been had my credit turned down. I've lived six guys in a three bedroom apartment sleeping on the floor with a pile of clothes, you know, not spending more than 20 bucks gaining 40 pounds because, you know, I buy one beer and eat five pounds of fried mushrooms at a bar. So I've been on that side and I've been on this side. This side's much better. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> We're going to give me shit about it. I don't care. Yeah. You know? Now, in terms of how I got here and what's right or what's wrong, look, part of it was hard work. Part of it was smarts. Part of it was luck. You know, what percentage of each? All hypothetical. I don't know. Is it a policy failure? Not necessarily. I don't think it's, you know, when you have, you're always going to have extremes no matter what. If everybody made the exact same amount of money, but one person grabbed the, the plot of land next to the ocean and somebody else grabbed the plot of land that's in a floodplain, you're going to have people who are at different extremes on the, on the realm of, of asset ownership, right? And so the question becomes, how do you deal with the people that need the help the most? And so when you say, you know, billionaires are a, pill, uh, a failure of policy, problem isn't that they're, they're billionaires. The problem is that there are people who aren't living up to standards and aren't having, don't have the things that they need. That's a problem. And the question becomes, how do you solve it? Yeah, I'm curious what you think is sort of the government's role in solving it as opposed to more like society's role in solving it. Like what is how much of this of solving that is social pressure and how much of it do you think should be things like changing the way taxes work, changing the way inheritance works, you know? Well, I'm a capitalist, so I believe in the marketplace of ideas. I don't care where the idea comes from, whether it's government. I don't care if it comes from a communist, a socialist, a capitalist. You know, the question becomes when you look at the problem, how do you solve it? You know, when, when I look at the problem of income inequality, it's a given that no matter what your hourly rate is, if you're one of the 77 million people that are paid by the hour, you're probably going to live paycheck to paycheck and you're probably going to struggle at some level, whether that, you know, whether you think a working wage is $15 or $50, right? Because of that uncertainty in when you're living paycheck to paycheck or hour or you're getting paid by the hour, then it's hard to really accumulate any type of asset base to increase your net worth. And so the question I've always asked and wanted to solve is, how do I take people who live out hour to hour and give them the opportunity to increase their net worth? Because if they have asset base, if they, whether it's a home, whether it's a bank account, you know, you guys know better than I do, 40% of people don't have $400 in case there's a problem. How do you change that? And then on the flip side, you say that the government best suited to do that. Yeah, they can pass the laws, but if every tax dollar that you pay ends up in only 25 cents or 50 cents or even 75 cents getting to the people who need it, you're not solving the problem. So I've, I've always looked at it to say there's a problem that needs solving. What's the best way to get there? And just being dogmatic about it, you know, all billionaires are bad or this is all bad. The government's got to pro you know, provide all the solutions because 
capitalism just doesn't work and socialism is better, but democratic socialism is even better. Communist is good unless it's bad. You know, when you, when you talk about, you know, parties and, and dogma, that's the only thing I know is going to be wrong. When you talk about ideas and you talk about trying to solve problems, then at least we have a shot. And then that's about creating movements, getting people to, to look towards those solutions and helping you implement Thank you for that. And I, I was really interested in something that you said in late March in an interview with Just Capital, where you, you stated your belief that during this pandemic, shareholders should come last for the people who run corporations and employees and their family members should come first. And I, you know, as someone who runs gigantic businesses and has for a while, when we're not in sort of, you know, plague times as we are right now, um, in what situations in sort of normal life do you think employees and their families should come first? And what situations do you think shareholders should come first? So every company in normal times has got a life cycle, right? So when I started my company, mm-hmm. it was me, right? And I took the I took the risk. I, you know, I got when I told you I was living six guys in a three three bedroom apartment, I got a job as a bartender at night and I was working selling software during the day, then I got fired. You know, and I quit my job as the bar. Actually, I was a bar back. I bartended just a little bit. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, I started this and I had no money and I convinced somebody to put five hundred dollars up. And I told them that the software I sold them didn't work. I'd walk their dog, wash their car, whatever it took to make them happy. I took that risk. And I feel like in every situation, someone who's taking that risk should benefit the most. Bernie Sanders wrote his book. He shouldn't share all the money he made from his book. He earned it. Now, as the company grows, different roles come in. You hire different people. And I'm of the attitude, and I've done this with the companies I've started, not only companies I've invested in, but the companies I've started, um, I've given everybody equity because I recognize that in order for the company to grow, my, my employees or the employees should be shareholders because they contribute whatever it is they have to do. And if they do it well, the company grows and everybody benefits. And I think that's the way it should be. But on the flip side, you know, there's different kinds of companies in different circumstances. So in the company that um, you hire a CEO, the CEO is not a fond founder. I think it's more likely that all employees are, are should be, should be, well, let me take a step back. I was talking about the life cycle. So as a company grows and companies have different roles and different layers of management, I think it's not un, it's not wrong so that people at the top are making more or owning more shares of stock, right? Or gather gaining more shares of stock because hopefully in that company they're taking on more responsibility and more risk, right? But still at the same time, everybody in the company should own shares of stock. Now, when you come into a situation like this where there's just an all stop, everything just ended, just came to a complete halt. Then yeah. everybody's on the same layer on the same level, right? The CEO isn't going to contribute all that much more than the person who waxes the floors because you're going from nothing to having to restart. And if everybody doesn't do their job to the best of their ability, the company doesn't work. Particularly when you're having to bring people in from disparate situations that are, you know, it's basically a food bar situation. So everything's uncertain. And so now in those circumstances, like we have now, Every employee is just as important as the CEO. 20 years from now, it could be a different equation. But right now, that's the way it is. So mm-hmm. prior to this, everybody should have equity in the company. Not everybody should get paid the same. Not everybody should own the same amount of equity. 
But when the company grows, and particularly if there's an exit and it's sold, everybody gains. Now we're at the we do, we should put employees first because employees are going to help you probably more than the CEO right now. Your general employees are going to help you more than your CEO. Uh, just sort of on this, because you've, uh, and like you talk about like your practices at your, at your company, which I don't think uh, a lot of other companies have those same practices. Um, and Speaking of those practices, you mean like that you're, you're continuing to pay your hourly workers for the duration of this and... Yeah. Right, right. Uh, a lot of the things that you're doing during this crisis, but also in general, you're talking about equity and uh, and yes, keeping them employed, even though they're not actually doing the work. Do all you guys work for the same company? We all work for iHeartRadio in some way or another. More or less. Yeah. In some way or another. Who owns the equity in the company right now? Who started it? Well, it's, well, oh. So there's two different things. Cody and I have our own company for some more news, and and this show is a production of iHeartRadio. So we are contract employees for iHeartRadio and owners of our yeah, own company. Yeah, and I'm a full-time employee for iHeartRadio, and yeah. So we're a hu- huge yeah, I'm, corporation. So Cody, for your guys' company, are you are you two the only ones in the company? Yes. Yes. Okay, a 50-50? Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing you guys working for iHeart, particularly as contractors, you guys are your are you guys are independent contractors or employees? Uh, we're employees. Uh, Sophie yes. and I. Yeah, full time yeah. employee. Katie, you guys contractors. So Katie and Cody are, are are have like a talent contract with iHeart, so they are right. contingent. All right, just curious. Got to know yeah. what I'm working. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> well, so I guess I guess my real question is, um, uh, you've also talked about uh, this moment sort of as uh, an opportunity to like rewrite the rules of how society mm-hmm. works, sort of like as a, this is a an American reset 1.0, I think you refer to it as. What are some things in your company that you've always done that you think might be good for legislation to make all companies sort of operate that way? And what are some things that this situation have made you reconsider and think about in other ways that you think would help mm-hmm. in the future when, when there's not a pandemic going on? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you legislate it, um, but I think it's, look, I think what really has changed right now is the need for leadership, right? Because there's so much uncertainty. The, the, the only thing that we know for sure is that we don't really know anything right now about what's going on. Yeah. Right? yeah. We're 100%. all really don't know. We don't know how long this is going to last. We can guess on the impact, but we don't know how long we're stuck inside. And when that happens, when you have a void of information, that's where leadership is most important. And so what I think is, and why you've seen me more vocal, not because I'm think, I think this is this great leader, it's just because no one else is saying anything, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just happened to happen that the NBA season stopped while the Dallas Mavericks were playing the game and they interviewed me and I told them what I thought about paying our hourly workers. And then people asked me more about how I like to, you know, what I thought about our employees, how I thought things should work. And so I just kind of fell into this. But when you have a void of leadership, it's hard for people to know. It's hard for people to know what to do or what comes next. And so I think what you need right now is somebody who can connect with all different viewpoints and understand where everybody is coming from, recognizing that we're not in a ready aim fire mode. We're in a ready fire aim mode, because if we don't get the stimulus deal done, then you know, people can't control their own lives. And when people can't, don't feel like they can control their own lives or they feel desperate, they go out into the streets and you have civil, you know, you have unrest. 
And that's the worst thing that can yeah. happen. So, you know, when you say what's the thing that's missing or what's the thing I've learned, I've learned that I've learned who the leaders are and who they're not. And I've learned the importance of leadership, mm-hmm. trying to introduce that and help our companies with it. I'm curious uh, what you think of this stimulus package that was passed last week, last year, whenever that was. Everything <laughs> time doesn't yeah. is meaningless now because I know you had a lot of thoughts about stock buybacks and how what should happen. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. I mean, if this yeah. deal had been had been negotiated three weeks earlier, yeah. I would have said that the companies who get money should never be allowed to buy back stock that they should only be allowed to pay dividends if all employees receive those dividends, that you know whatever you do for the CEO, you have to do for every employee. So if the CEO makes a million dollars a year and you give them a million dollars worth of stock options or value and repricing stock options, and you have someone who waxes the floors and makes $30,000 a year, that person gets 100% equivalent in value as well. So that everybody stands to gain. So I would have included that. Yeah. I also would have you know, a much better negotiator for we, the people, in that I'd also ask for stock warrants for the government. You know, if you look at the deal that Warren Buffett did when he bailed out Bank of America um, 10 years ago, he gave them $5 billion to help them survive. But he also asked for warrants, which allows you to buy stock at a given price by some Mm -hmm. date in the future. And he made another $12 billion off of that. People, whoever's negotiating for the United States taxpayers should be asking for the same thing. And if Boeing or any other company doesn't want to do that, let them get the money somewhere else or go out of business if they don't feel it's necessary. So I think, you know, it wasn't perfect, but in terms of what we got, um, I think I think it's platformable and hopefully we'll take the steps to really have some. And I've even volunteered. I said, look, I'll put on my Shark Tank hat and you put me in the negotiations with Boeing or whoever and we're getting a great deal. Right, we're going to own a big chunk. Of the board. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what we need to happen. Someone needs to represent we the people because that's what's been missing and what was missing ten years ago. I I think that's a really reasonable idea, and I I I hear that you're kind of coming at a lot of this from you know it sounds like to me sort of a top down per perspective. Like you you think that one of the things missing in this crisis is sort of like a central. Like, like, like a, a solid voice of leadership, not just arguing for people, but kind of laying out what needs to happen. And I, I, I agree with you. I think we've seen an absence of that. But I also can't help but feel like a lot of the solution to the problems that are kind of being made very clear right now is more input from people on the bottom. Um, you know, I think we've seen mm-hmm. some corporations respond well to this. We've seen a lot respond poorly, and the ones that have responded poorly have ignored the people who make their companies work, um, and I think I like one of the things that I'm really interested is in uh, from Sanders is he has a plan that would uh, require publicly traded companies to gift two percent of their stock or more to employees per year until twenty percent of the company was employee owned. That's not enough, right? That's not enough, right? So, like the companies that I have, typically they'll do a ten percent option pool that's available to all employees, mm-hmm. and that's where I've started already. So, you know, having it grow. When I say not enough, right? I I think when it's all said and done and averaged out, I'm not saying every company needs to give 20% or more, but when it's all said and done and averaged out, it should be normal. Because remember what I said, every good company should give stock to every single employee, right? And so you should end up, if you do it that way, you shouldn't have to grant every single year. You should be rewarding people when you hire them. You should be rewarding and start up just like you guys did when you started your company, right? As 50-50, you know? 
That's how you, that's and it should end up being more than 20 percent. There, there really should be companies we, that you have to force to grant options to them. Wait, are you saying there you should have to force companies? I'm not sure if that got garbled up. Um, I'm saying you shouldn't have sure. to. And mm. also saying that there's no problem in shaming those companies that don't do it. Because I think, and I've said this before, how you treat your employees right now when the shit's, when everybody's backs up against the wall is going to be how you're defined as a brand for decades. And yeah. you don't take care of your employees now. Look, we live in, in a video, we live in a look at my brand generation, right? Everybody's got social media. Tony's really proud of his brand. He's going to wrap, you know, he's going to bust on everybody, you know, and that's the thing. And that's, <laughs> it. And that's his plan. Right. Cody, you know, Cody's not going to wear a T-shirt that says, you know, I love billionaires. And if you know and he's not. Well, how much are you going to pay me to wear that shirt? (laughs) (laughs) You get my point. Right. So companies who aren't doing things right. Every everybody's Instagram account is their definition of who they are as a brand, as an individual brand. And so you're not going to buy products and put them on your account if you don't think they represent who you are. You know, it's why Bernie Sanders has had such a movement. People, yeah, yeah. Want, that's who they want their brand to be. They want to be associated with that. And so when you say, you know, you need to have 20%, I hope we don't have to legislate it. I hope it's just common sense thing to do. And I'm kind of curious to sort of push on this a little bit. How, if, if you were in a position of sort of national political importance, how would you, without legislation, try to push businesses to institute something like this? You can incent them via the tax um, tax law. Right. right. You can incent okay, okay. them. Yeah. Different ways. You know, if you just legislate it, it creates so many problems because then remember, I mean, there's just there's always trying trying to find an equilibrium is always the, the hard part. Right. But there's all kinds of tax incentives you can do where, you know, you get a deduction for that, that stock. There's you know, it's tax free to the employee, you know, if they hold it for more than five years. And I've written a lot about uh, I've written a lot about this on my blog, Blog Maverick. I think that CEOs should only be paid in stock and make, um, and, and I'm sorry, I think that CEOs should only be paid in cash because cash is the most dear asset to a corporation and you just pay them a salary and let them go out and buy it on the open market for any company that doesn't give stock to their their own employees. Okay. And I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you've been a billionaire for a while, Mark. Um, and in fact, nice I grew job. up in the Dallas, I grew up in the Dallas area and I think it was either you or Ross Perot was the first billionaire that like, you know, we, 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 like our, our, our word for rich was Mark Cuban a lot of the time. And I, I, I feel as if the national conversation around billionaires has changed rather sharply. And there's a, a lot of people right now who have a lot of a really extreme amount of anger towards what they would refer to as the billionaire class. And I'm wondering just kind of on an emotional level, how has how it feels to have, you know, that level of wealth changed and how have you sort of noticed the conversation around it changed as that sort of interfaced with your own life i mean i ignore bank account bigots <laughs> bank account bigots. <laughs> <laughs> it, but i i'm so is it it hasn't been um like just the fact that that's a popular topic of conversation has kind of been something you've 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 not sort of uh i don't know taken too personally Metabolism. No, I mean, I don't ignore an idea from somebody who's poor. I don't ignore an idea from somebody who's rich. And somebody mm-hmm. actually have a little bit less respect for somebody who ignores what I say once I once I became wealthier and if I you know and would have accepted what I said if I was when I was poor, right? That doesn't make sense to me. I'm I'm a big believer that good ideas should rise to the top. 
And it, have you, I, I'm wondering, like, have you had to, like, take any particular steps to sort of make sure that you're able to stay in contact with people who, you know, aren't at a, a higher level of wealth? Like, is that something that does kind of get harder the more you have? Is it something you have to really, like, think about doing? Yeah, to stay accessible. No, my best friends are still my best friends from high school and college. You know, when I moved to Dallas and I was hanging out with, I lived in the village and, you know, that was my six guys in three bedroom, you know, in a three bedroom apartment. They're still my best friends. I don't, you know, it's not like I look for people. Oh my God, you're rich. Can we be friends? No, that's ridiculous, <laughs> right? My friends, friends, you know, and those are the same people. And, you know, when I go out, you know, if you ever saw me around Dallas or whatever with my family or before, you know, you know, I'm just me. I just go to the same places I've always gone to do the same things I've always done. I mean, I have a nicer car. I have a plane. I have stuff I never dreamed of having. That's what's changed. <laughs> my bank accounts obviously changed. But if you talk to my friends, my nickname in high school is Boris because I took Russian and I sat next to a girl who decided to name herself Natasha. So from Boris and Natasha, if you know the old Rocky and Bullwin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. My high school friends still call me Boris and it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> and so it's not about, you know, how do I stay connected? No. Yeah. I mean, that's not a problem. I'm curious. So, okay, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. There's some sort of a, a great equalizer in that. Um, there in that we're all quarantined together. We're all going through an experience. Although, of course, your experience is probably much different than mine. I, I assume you have a home gym and stuff like that and we're making do. But what are the experiences that you think are universal? Like, are you are you taking up uh, your kids' uh, education at home? Are you doing their homeschooling and stuff like that? Look, do I have it easier? You know, because my yeah. I was on, we did a, um, a, a Google Hangouts with a bunch of my high school buddies last night. And one of them had just gotten laid off and we were talking yeah. about it. And he's bummed and he's pissed and all this. And we're talking about filing for, for um, benefits. And he's like, well, what are you guys doing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> a, a tennis slash basketball court out back and I can go shoot with my son. Yeah, I've got, you know, I've got a 13 and 16 year old daughter and they ignore me either way. It doesn't matter how yeah. much money I have. Unless you want to do a TikTok video. Exactly right. right? <laughs> I, I do have a lot of empathy for the teenagers during this, this crisis because what a nightmare. Oh, my God. Stuck with your parents, not being able yeah. to be with your friends, just all this being so uncertain. But the one common denominator is fear. Yeah. We fear for our families. We fear for our friends. We fear for ourselves. We fear the uncertainty. And yeah. there's no amount of money that can change us. And, yeah. And that. It's really easy for us all to forget that when we're we're sitting in the midst of our own fear is to look at what other people have and to say like, well, they don't get it. No, we get it. We can all relate to that. There's I, just we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I'm I'm curious what you think, Mark, about so we're we're having this kind of national conversation about the social safety net, you know, in the wake of all this and like where it should be and at least in my mind, when we talk about the social safety net, what we're talking about is like the floor. Like what is the floor we should allow um, in our society, you know, what is kind of the minimum that we think we should try make sure that people have? Um, and I, I wonder, or wages, or what do you yeah. think? What pick, pick a pick a segment because that covers a yeah. lot. Yeah, sure, sure. I, I guess, yeah. Let's start with, um, let's start with access to, um, you know, a roof over your head, like with with, with homelessness and stuff. Like, what do you think? Like that that has been thrown into sharp relief by this and the fact that there's a disease spreading now. What do you think is the minimum Americans should expect when it comes to shelter? I think they should expect shelter. 
Now, yeah. not everybody's going to take you up on it, but I don't, I'd have sure. no problem. I have no problem at all. I mean, we need to enhance that. We look, when I talked about America 2.0 and a reset, one of the things that we should do is reevaluate zoning laws because as we learn to work from home, as companies, particularly retailers, go out of business because of shopping online, um, now all of a sudden there may be more space, there may be more opportunity to rebuild. You know, I don't want they shouldn't be shelters, they should be homes, right? Yeah. But the hard part, the hard part isn't should we do it? The hard part is how do we do it and where, right? One of the things that has has come up is that, you know, when I came out of college, relocating to go to any city where you've got a job was no big deal. Now people don't want to relocate. They don't want to go where there might be plenty of space or plenty of land. They want to stay where they're comfortable. They want to stay closer to their families. Or even if they have no families, they want to stay where their weather is nicer, whatever it may be, right? And so how do you balance that? So what if we built 200,000 units in Idaho? And it was cheap and it was free, cheap to live, free to whoever's living there for some period of time, if not permanently, but they don't want to go to Idaho. How do you deal with that? Right. Well, you build them elsewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can build in a lot of places, but what if it's yeah. not the place I want to go? Right. Yeah. I love Dallas. You know, you're, there's not enough. Well, Dallas is too dense. We can't build them here. But if you go down to pick a small town in Texas, oh, it's too hot there. It's too dry. Right. For whatever reason. That's the challenge because yeah. all of us want that free will to be able to make our own decisions. And so not everybody wants to go where they're told to go. And so well, have balance of liberty and support. That's part of the hard part when you talk about housing. I think we can agree like there there needs to be more housing available, you know, yeah. even though that like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The issue isn't enough, right? Or, or more rather. The issue yeah. is it's enough, right? Sure. And at some point when you're going from more to enough, there's a lot of people that are going to be asked to do things they don't want to do. Yeah. And that's where it's hard to find the equilibrium. And that's where people get upset. How could you not give this person exactly what they want? How could you not do this? How could you not do that? That's where it's hard to find answer. Yeah. It's tough because like what you're talking about is, you know, like building all, all housing in this this random space. Well, how do you incentivize industries to go there as well so that there's opportunities for people to move there? You know, my dad works in nonprofit uh drug rehabilitation and works with the communities in Northern California. And, and one of the issues that they come across a lot is, is homelessness. And he's come up against like what you mentioned, zoning, different laws, like people willing to come in and build, you know, prefab places, housing communities, and not being able to get zoning clearances from the community, even though the community wants that. But now that we're in, we're about to hit at some point when we get to the other side of this America 2.0, that can change and will change, right? Because yeah. so many companies are going to go out of business, so many, yeah. right? It's there, that there's going to be space available. It's not a. It's just a question of you know how do you pay for a lot of this? Because we're going to go six trillion dollars in debt, and it's mm-hmm. going to go worse than that because there's there's so much forbearance on taxes being paid that every municipality, every county, every, every city, every state is going to see their, their tax revenues decline by who knows how much. And all those programs that are great programs are not going to be funded. And we can borrow more. And I'm not against that at all. But that's where leadership comes in, because you've got to have somebody that has a sense of compassion, the ability to execute on these compassionate items, and somebody with a a mind for business 
that understands the hard parts finding the equilibrium across all of this because right. there are no rules and it's going to be imperfect information. That's going to be hard. Yeah, I, I think you're. I agree with what you're saying there. Um, I I think that though, like it seems to me at least that part of the solution is you know money is required, and so the question is like where to get that money. Debt is absolutely part of it. Um, what do you think in terms of uh, spend all that money now in America yeah. 2.0 with the reset? Right, you have to realize that a lot of what we're doing with stimulus is forbearing money that would otherwise be paid in taxes. Yeah, and given that a lot of people are going to be out of work and companies are going to be closed, tax revenue is going to drop significantly. So mm -hmm. we still can, we still can borrow money, but being effective in how you use that is critical because if it doesn't turn out right, then we can end up in a depression where nobody has the opportunity yeah. to help lift anybody up. And that's, yeah, that's, that's a very good point. And I, I wonder what you see as sort of the role, if any, in increasing uh, tax the tax burden, particularly on like a big part of the conversation yeah. that pops up online is like Amazon only paid X in taxes or didn't pay you know federal taxes. How much of the of the solving that problem do you think is um, increasing levying new taxes on you know the, the wealthy and on businesses? Like I I personally know mine are probably going to go up. Yeah, I, I've, I've said it to Cody. I've said it a hundred times. I've had no problem with my taxes going up. My tax rate this year was twenty nine percent. Right. Yeah. I literally didn't take every every deduction I could have taken because I wanted to pay a little bit. I'm the idiot that wants to pay a little bit more in taxes. And I, I'm the idiot who's literally written a check to the Dallas Treasury to try to help. But all that said, taxes will go up. But the tax base is because of all this is going to sure. drop. Absolutely. And so, look, I'm, I'm not a Bernie fan for a lot of reasons, but I'm not against a lot of Bernie's ideas. But what I'm against on Bernie is that he has no ability to execute on them. And so he's not, well, you can argue that Elizabeth Warren put together a plan that I don't know whether or not she could execute or not. They, I would argue that she hasn't shown that she's able to. Um, and Bernie has said, I don't need to explain to you at all. In America, America 1.0, maybe you could get through that because you have, we're finding out now, maybe there was two, two trillion or six trillion fluff, right? And how much we could borrow. But now that fluff, if it was there, is gone. Right. Mm -hmm. So you need somebody who ha who can communicate to everybody and understand the needs to lift people up because, you know, the top is going to be compressed dramatically. I can't even tell you how many hundreds of millions of dollars I've lost, you know. And so, yeah, I'll still pay. I'll still pay more taxes. And I'm OK with that because I'm still in good shape. But what I will tell you, talking to talk when I talk to other like team owners, liquidity, I think what a lot of people don't understand from Bernie's angle, Elizabeth Warren's angle in the 5% the, the tax in America 2.0, liquidity dropped dramatically. So if you happen to be worth $100,000 um, with your house or $200,000 with your house, how much do we expect that you have in cash or liquid assets available in the bank? The percentage you have is probably not all that much different from somebody who is far, far wealthier. And so when you talk about taxing more after all this that has happened, in America 2.0, the liquidity of the one percenters has dropped dramatically. And I'm not saying give them any empathy or sympathy. No, not at all. What I'm saying is if you're going to get this right and you really want to lift up the bottom and you really want to reduce income inequality, you have to take into consideration reality and everything that's happened. So I guess how do you feel a lot of this conversation seems uh, very familiar just in the past 
many decades to sort of stall the progress. So if you're saying like, well, I like this idea of this plan, but it can't be implemented. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying, look, if you if, if it was me sitting down with you guys, we could implement, we could come up with a plan that worked, right? Because we would care about finding something that would have, I'll keep on using the word equilibrium, a balance to it, right? Because I think business thrives when you lift the bottom. The top should be able to lift our, we should be able to lift ourselves, right? We should be economic, we should be entrepreneurial. We can be innovative. We can invest. We can lift ourselves. You need to lift the bottom. But what's happened now, and as we try to get to the other side of this, the bottom has fallen out for the bottom. They, they didn't have to fall as far as everybody else is falling, right? But the, the bottom has fallen out for a lot of the 1% as well. And you've actually compressed the, the delta between the bottom and the top. If things stay the same the way it is now, right? With the markets and everything else. I mean, you're seeing real estate in some cities just collapse. Yeah, yeah. You're seeing business values just collapse. And so people, you know, look again, no sympathy for me, but other people who may not have been so wealthy or, or as, as prepared for this as I was, um, now all of a sudden you can tax them more. They just, it's not there. They won't have the money. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you deal with that in this environment after a reset? And what you do is you say all, everything's off the table, whatever you were dogmatic about before, put that aside and say, what do people need to live, right? And I'm fine with $15 an hour as long as everybody plays by the same rules. Mm-hmm. Is that a, how can we increase equity? Well, if the housing market collapsed, maybe we can get people into homes far less expensively and support them so that they can own their own homes if they're making enough of a living wage to do that. And how do we tax people to get there? Well, yeah, people like me are going to pay more, but you have to look at extraneous programs as well and say, do we really need this, this, or this being paid for by the government? Because now tax revenues have dropped dramatically. So how do you solve all these problems knowing that tax revenues are cut in half even after taxing people like me far more? Because well, we looked at Elizabeth Warren's numbers for the amount of money raised. They were, they were high based off of what I knew about my own liquidity. Mm-hmm. And now they're going to be far lower. How do you balance all that so you get it to work? Yeah. Off the top of your head, what would you consider extraneous programs that wouldn't need to be? I mean, you hate to say it, but maybe some arts programs, mm-hmm. you know, putting the statue in front of the hospital, you know, putting the statue in the park. Um, maybe even though it's great to see artists paid and they need it as much as anybody, that's something you say, okay, maybe we don't have to do that. You don't need to give, you know, tax breaks for people like me at all. You know, well, I agree with that. But. <laughs> Go through the list again. Of course. I mean, I, I won't hold that to you, but yeah. And it, and it shouldn't be just me making the decision. And that's the point. And I, I, one thing I wanted to kind of bring in is sort of this another in terms of national discussions that we're having right now. One is the idea of people who are like taking advantage of this current crisis uh, and using it to make a pile of money. Yeah. And you've had yeah. some dealings as a result of 3M and some of the stuff that's happened in terms of like gouging of uh, of medical supplies. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind sort of relating, because um, at least the story that I've read is that you were getting emails basically trying to sell you these face masks and stuff. And is that, yeah. So could you tell me about that? I'm kind of curious about like when a pandemic hits and the economy collapses, what sort of emails a billionaire business owner starts to get? Yeah. <laughs> He's got a side hustle. So, you know, whether it's fake watches, real watches, mm-hmm. um, 
fuel in New Jersey and New York uh, to get around taxes, drugs, illegal drugs. Whenever, wherever there's a black market, it thrives when there's a lack of information. Sure. And what's happened with the surgical masks, the N95s that we're all stressing about because our frontline healthcare workers, the people who are saving our ass and saving the ass of the people who are getting sick, they don't even have these masks to help keep them safe. And so what happened was there are only like three or four domestic manufacturers of those masks um, when this all hit. And 3M was the biggest of them. And so I started looking into it because it didn't make sense to me that there, there weren't enough masks. Um, and as it turns out, 3M sells through these exclusive distributors. And those exclusive, exclusive distributors would not give out any information to anybody, whether you're a hospital or a third party or whatever. They would just say, you know what, place an order. You can't cancel it. And we'll fill it when we can fill it. And oh, by the way, you're not going to get the same number of masks. And in, in this particular case with 3M, to their credit, um, they increased their production and they supposedly kept all their pricing the same, but they ghosted everybody in terms of what was actually happening in the market. And what I said publicly was, look, there is a product manager at 3M who knows everything about the surgical mask business. He or she is an expert, can tell you where every surgical mask is made around the world, who uses it, who the primary customers are, how they're distributed. All you have to do, 3M, is get a person who has that knowledge to speak up so we understand what's happening in the surgical mask market and the, the personal protection market so that we all don't freak out about our healthcare providers and we all don't have, you know, we all have somebody in our extended family who works in healthcare and we're not scared shitless for their health. They won't do it, right? And when they and others don't do that, you've got people that are panicking. And so now you're getting hospitals and the government and states all chasing the same sources, which are now around the world. These plants in China have expanded, you know, and plants in China can turn around and start making these masks. But for some reason, we can't here. You know, we're not as fast, even though Honeywell and some others have done some good things to increase production. We don't seem to be able to do that here. But the experts who understand these biz this business are basically silent. And when you have that silence, you amplify the fear and you get it results in higher prices. And to me, that's not being a good corporate citizen. It may not be criminal, but it's emo it's morally criminal. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. By, by just keeping this market opaque. You have a lot of people trying to do the right thing. And by doing that, they're increasing prices for everybody because there's there's no information and there's nobody in charge. That's what I had a problem with. And I was very loud towards 3M. And they responded, you know, they they basically said, We're, you know, here's our pricing. We haven't raised it. That's good. Here's our production. We've increased it. That's good. And then they ghosted us again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my brother is an emergency room doctor and Thankfully, he's told me they have enough PPE for this week, but it's definitely something that's on my mind consistently, you know. Yes. Having these people speak won't change the facts, but at least you'll understand it. You know, again, leadership, Absolutely. right? When you, you have honesty and transparency and communication, that's what good leaders do. And that's how you get through crises like this. Yeah. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through together or not. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Everything is so dumb, 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 dumb. You've talked a lot about leadership and lack of leadership, uh, and I'm sure this is a question you've been asked a lot, but would you be considering running for office of some sort locally or at some point? Locally, I mean, no, that's that's not who I am. I mean, I... I <laughs> you went bigger than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I obviously looked at running for president, um, but my family literally voted in town. They said no, otherwise I would have. Um, Democracy. You know, and, and in this world, who knows? You know, as, as you know, I've been saying, America 2.0, the reset, you know, who knows what we need or who we need or how it all works. But I'll tell you this, I'm not a fan of who we have and I'm not a fan of who's running, you know, yeah. or who have run. You, none of the candidates really got, did it for you? I, I didn't think there was a leader among them. I didn't think there was, I think they were all politicians and not that that's necessarily bad, but I didn't think they really, I, I like when Elizabeth Warren you know, delineated everything she was trying to do, but I felt like they were all written by policy wonks and it wasn't authentic to her. I like Bernie Sanders in terms of pushing a movement and speaking up for the little guy, but I don't think he knows how to do it. I think he knows what to say to get people excited, but he doesn't know how to execute on it. You know, I think Joe Biden is a placeholder that's better than Donald Trump. Real exciting uh, uh, yeah. campaign slogan. <laughs> better than uh, Donald Trump. I mean, look, I know Joe and I like him. He could do he could do a decent job, but you know, and he he can be a voice for the people, but he's not a voice of the people. You know what I'm saying? And he's not yeah. a problem solver per se. He, he 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 allows things to happen. He doesn't make things happen. He kind of represents the status quo in a lot of ways. Um, well, you know, given what we've had, that's not a bad thing. 
I understand. I understand how people are compelled by that, uh, especially at this point in time. It's not what I think we need, but I understand why people are pulled to it. Yeah, sometimes you don't get what you need, and you just got to take the best of the options, you know. Sure. So as the only NBA fan in this group. Well, I was about to go to my very first NBA game when all of this happened. So <laughs> which game were you going to go to? I was going to the Clippers. I can't remember. My boyfriend bought the tickets. <laughs> <laughs> it would be like against my moral to not ask you some NBA questions. You know, sure. NBA is like the thing that has kept, the one thing my entire family can all agree on. We're huge Laker fans. Um, obviously, the Lakers. Uh, having... Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so I, I just wanted to ask you a few questions. You know, realistically, sure. what do you think that the NBA should do? Like, what's the best playoff format? You know, I know that you talked on ESPN with Stephen A. Smith and he suggested some sort of like a one city tournament style playoff thing. Like, what do you what do you think realistically now with where we're at is possible? Number one is safety, right? You've sure. got to make sure everybody's safe. And so within that realm, you know, having everybody in one big Vegas hotel or one big complex, you know, like an Olympic village type thing, you would think would be the safest, but I'm not the expert on that, right? And so don't listen to me about what's safe and not safe. You know, listen, we'll listen to the experts. But what I will say is we need sports. Like you yeah. said, you know, your family, you know, comes together over the Lakers. There, you know, when, when a company, when Google has their best year ever, nobody throws a parade. Sure. When, the, when a team in the city, wins a championship in a major sport there's parades everybody's going yeah. nuts everybody's watching everybody's screaming cody do you watch sports uh cody not really not. but i but i do <laughs> I, I i watch we need sports in our lives we do because um we need something to cheer for we need something to to communally come together you know yeah. if you're in, in la voting for the clippers or rooting for the clippers or the lakers you're in dallas lakers. rooting for the mavericks whoever it may be we want something to cheer for. Could you imagine if we were having the Olympics and all this was still going on and there was like the an underdog United States team and yeah. they beat China and something. It would feel or, good. You know, oh my God, we'd all be going nuts. Even if yeah. you didn't care anything about sports. Right. I, I certainly always get swept up uh, at some point or another sports. I, I completely agree. Um, do you think that there's any way, are you guys thinking about any ways to bring that community together via live stream? I mean, we've seen a lot of like social distance concerts and stuff like that. It would be nice. Absolutely. Look, I, I don't think, and, I, and I, I'm just guessing, but I don't think we play in front of fans for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which means we'll be watching it on streams and watching it on television. Yeah. And again, yeah. you know, even though you won't be with people outside your apartment or house or whatever, you're going to hear them, you know? Yeah, I think it would be a good morale booster for for a lot of people. That's a responsibility that we have that we we can fill that role. And again, mm -hmm. even though you might not be a sports fan, Cody, um, you mm -hmm. will benefit from everybody just being cheerier and happier and more excited and having something <laughs> to look forward to. My goodness. Right. Oh, oh absolutely. I, I, anything. I agree 100 percent about that. And I, I think that sports can be a really healing and important thing for all of us. Um, I also feel that like one of the things we need to move away from is um, having politics be treated like sports, because in a sports game, it is like a binary. One team wins, the other loses. And we're we've gotten used to that being the way politics works. And when a pandemic hits, that's not the way it works. We either all win or we all lose. Right. How do we how do we get back to something? Or I don't know if we ever were there, but how do we how do we make politics in America less like sports? Um, I don't know. 
<laughs> that's that's a good fair, fair answer. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't either. Hopefully, this will lead to it and and give us that opportunity. It's going to have to come from somewhere else, right? I mean, it's I don't see any of the options that we see. I don't I don't think they're it, you know. And you're not hearing anything that gives you comfort from anybody. And you know, it, it's unfortunate, but again, there's a dearth of leadership in this country. So as as an MBA owner, how are you as a leader communicating with your team right now? You know, how are you keeping group your chat. <laughs> group, chat? group chat? Yeah. I mean, like, how are players? Do you guys all get on Zoom together or <laughs> house party? <laughs> Not so much me, but yeah, or, you know, uh, video games, but mostly group chat, sending stupid gifs and memes mm-hmm. and just dumb stuff, to, you know, like everybody does. You know, I just think of, you know, the Lakers and LeBron being of, of the age that he is and, you know, just... How are players staying motivated? And do you worry about injuries once the season does resume, things like that, because they're not doing five on five or even any sort of team team practicing? We've had shortened seasons before, you know, um, for for um, negotiations and contract issues. And so, you know, where after the Mavs won, see that baby back there after. The, <laughs> I, I see it, Mark. After the Mavs championship, um, you know. We, there was a uh, strike shortened season. And so, you know, we put it together so that there was enough of a training camp that players wouldn't get hurt. So again, whether it's the virus or any other reason, we're, we're not going to risk the player's livelihood and their, their health to just put together a season. Sure. I, and, and, you know, just like the mental health of it all, you know, if there is a season, it is a sort of thing where players have to be away from their families um, and coaching staff, you know, wh- what measures is the NBA taking already to plan for that as well as like I don't know. okay honestly they don't tell me everything and sure. i've been busy with so many other things you know this this is so much bigger than all that um you know for me i look at all these small businesses who are just getting decimated and so i've been trying to do as many of these where i communicate with the, with small businesses and try to give them hope and try to give them guidance just like you guys are stressing i mean you have a podcast and you know advertising drives what you hope to be your future. And that's got to be scary as hell, you know? Yeah. And so what, sure. you, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, and so talking to companies and, and doing these types of give and takes. And so if you guys want to ask me questions about that, I'll answer But you know, that, that is stressful. And if I can't, if we can't keep those small businesses in business, you can't keep those employees connected. And if sure. those small businesses aren't working, you know, all those independent contractors aren't getting paid either. And so, that, that's a big deal. And so that's really where I've been trying to focus. And we've got enough people who deal with all the day-to-day stuff and even the big picture stuff at the NBA. They don't need me for, for that type of stuff. Yeah, it strikes me when I, I listen to like you talk about the 3M thing, talk about sort of the the importance you feel now in getting involved in this conversation about like what should happen as a result of this to stop the worst case scenarios from occurring and to reset, you know, where we are as a country. Um you have this option because both, you know, you have a very prominent uh, position in the media, but also because you're you're a very wealthy, successful person. And I think from the outside, a lot of us look at people who are at your level of wealth, who are billionaires, as as it's like having a superpower, right? In terms of the ability to change the world around you that you have. Am I? Is that power? But I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm I'm interested in how you feel about that. If you wouldn't call it a superpower, what do you think? Um, me and other folks are kind of getting wrong about what it actually is like to to have those kind of options that you have, because you definitely have a different list. I'm not going to be arrogant. I'm I'm self aware yeah. enough to know what I'm sure. good at, what I'm stuck at, 
And I'm not here to tell you about that school of power, but I've got experience. And so I get the benefit of my experience. And that's all I can do. I'm not, you know, there, there's a lot of people smarter than me. There's a lot of people dumber than me, you know, but there aren't a lot of people that have touched all the different businesses that I have had. There's not a lot of people that have the combination of tech and business, hopefully empathy, you know, um, and I haven't always been empathetic. I haven't always empathized with everybody. That was that was something I had to learn the hard way. But um, you know, there's no superpower. And again, I'll say it again. I just want the best ideas to rise to the top. And so when I went back and forth with Cody, you know, that's why I went back and forth with him. You know, I don't have to engage with anybody. If, if there's a superpower of being wealthy, it's like I can just be arrogant and turn my back on everybody. But that's not who I am. And I try to learn from everybody. And so. The only superpower I guess I have is that I can turn my back and I also can turn lean in and listen to anybody and not feel threatened. Yeah. And I, I wonder sort of as a society, I think we're all thinking more about our healthcare professionals because they're the ones putting their lives on the line to protect us all from this. Um, what do you think we owe these people on the other side of this pandemic? What do you think we owe the folks, the doctors and nurses and, and hospital janitorial staff, those kind of folks who are keeping the crucial part of our infrastructure going right now? Like, what do we owe them? I think you ask them what they want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think one of the things, you know, going back a little bit to healthcare and support services, I think med school should be free. Now, you know, I know Bernie wants free college for everybody, but I think the way he approached it was wrong because the way he approached it by saying it's just free for everybody from any public university, every university has already proven that they're really good at jacking up tuition and board um, and room and board and costs. And all you're doing is giving them a license to do it even more. And Fair point. Board, right. And so there's ways to say in every region, you, you allow the schools to bid and you pick one school that is the free school and you make community colleges free because that localizes it more. But no matter what for med school, since it's hard to get in and it's expensive, and we need more doctors. There's only a million practicing doctors right now. We have 2.4 um, doctors per thousand people, which is 50% less than most of Western Europe. And so we don't, we, we're not in a position. So when something like this hits, we're less prepared. And so yes, whatever they want, because they've earned it, but if we don't have enough doctors, really monetary isn't going to be all that much benefit to them because you know, maybe you pay off their loans, but they're still going to have to do the job. and We're still going to be shorthanded. You know, so we need to get more doctors in the system. Now, a lot of doctors would argue on that are specialists because I've had this argument with them that for specialists, you don't want too many. If you look at the difference between the United States and Canada, the big delta isn't with the number of physicians they have per thousand people. The big delta is they have a lot more um, um, primary care doctors and we have a lot more specialists. And the pri primary care doctors act as the gateways into the healthcare system, which regulates how much healthcare is used. And we haven't really addressed that here. We just let everybody go to the doctor that they want, how and when they want it, and we don't regulate at all. But if we increase the number of primary care physicians, we can, we can start to address some of these things. And you do a lot of that by opening the doors. You want to bring the bottom up more, you open the doors and make med school free. And if we do that, if med school only costs fifty thousand um, dollars a semester, was it fifty thousand dollars a semester, hundred thousand dollars a year? And I forget. I think there are eight thousand med students at any given point in time. That's eight billion dollars a year. It's worth it. 
because our, the doctor population is aging. And you can tell I've spent a lot of time with mm-hmm. this because, yeah. you know, I mentioned to yeah. Cody that um, healthcare is important to me and I'm against single payer across the board, but I'm for a hybrid version, a single payer and open market. I'm I'm a, a single payer supporter myself, but I can definitely agree with you that I, I can't think of a better way to spend $8 billion than more doctors. Yeah. Look for the best candidates, but a lot of the best candidates don't even get to the point where they can apply, you yeah, know, right. and, and it's unfortunate. And and that's a problem across the board with everything, you know, our political system. It's run by a power structure of two parties. If it were up to me, and I should have said this when you asked about, you know, what we should do, I'd get rid of all political parties. They yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm there with you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What I'm do you bored. feel about no presidents? Yeah. You know, when it comes to my personal beliefs on this, I, I, I am from the idea of um, I, I don't I think the healthier our society is, as a general rule, the lower the gap between rich and poor is going to be. Um, and I, I, I have a trouble seeing I have trouble morally squaring myself with people having billions of dollars in this situation where we also have huge numbers of people on the streets, kids starving. Um, things that are are not being done that that need to be done in our country. Um, but I also feel that like it, the problems we're facing right now are problems that need to be dealt with ad hoc. It's not a situation where just being like, well, I'm going to commit to this ideology is the solution. And so I don't agree with you on a lot of things. But if we can uh, if we can work together to make sure medical school is free, then I'll do that. You know, yeah. You know, I I would say I think that um I think there's a level of the stock market as it exists that I I can't square myself with morally. The idea that like dividends are paid out to a company based on the profit generated by laborers um and then those dividends um they don't tend to go back to the laborers. Like I in my an, an equitable system I think would be one where um it is impossible to have a publicly traded company that employees don't have as much say in at least as as the investors. Like I'm a big kind of workers controlling the means of production thing. And if that winds up being a hybrid of what we have now and something new, I'm okay with that. But I think that needs to change pretty radically. Well, okay. So let, let's start there. So you already know that I agree that that I, I believe that all mm-hmm. employees shares of stock, right? Sure, sure. And so when dividends are paid, then they'll also benefit from the dividends paid. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm great with it. Yeah. Now in terms of having worker control or worker influence, there's two different types of companies. There's a company where you hire the CEO and there's a founder-driven company. So for the companies I've started, like when we started AudioNet, which effectively started the whole streaming industry, if I just immediately set up a workers council and said, everybody give me your feedback, we would have failed miserably because I had it was my vision and my partner's vision. And my first company was the same way where it was just go, 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 go. And we got input from the employees, but it was always my final decision. That's a founder-driven company where a company hires a CEO, right? If the employees own enough shares of stock or they get people that they connect to to buy enough to get control, then when you go hire a CEO, you can direct the, the, the approach that that CEO will take. And if they want to have or the, the shareholders, which now include the employees, want to make it an employee-driven company, there, I don't have a problem with that. But, it, you know, at the end of the day, the results are still going to speak for themselves. You know, if we get better results um, from employee um, council driven companies, more companies will do it. If we get worse results, 
those companies will struggle and most companies will try not to do it. And so that's where the Darwinian nature of capitalism will either either make it work or fail. And so I'm not against it at all, except in founder-driven companies, because I think it's difficult to say to somebody who took all the risk or most of the risk, you know, you can't make the decisions you believe in and that you designed the company to do because here's this council that says otherwise. And the same thing happens with the board of directors. Yeah, and I, I don't in, I don't disagree with that. I think there's certainly a place. There's obvious and inarguable inarguable benefits of companies that are run that way. There's things they do incredibly well, and there, there's no denying that. But I'm also looking out at this world, and like I'm kind of hesitant to bring some of this up because I don't want it to be like here's a bad thing a completely different person who happens to be a billionaire did answer for it, Mark Cuban, because that's not a fair. That's fine. Um, I'm here but, to learn. Yeah. Like Cody would, if Cody could could respond or hear. Right. Yeah. Tell you. I went back and forth with him because I'm always curious. I'm not going to get any smarter if I yeah. just live in a cocoon. Uh, yeah, I, I have less of an issue with the idea of individuals with a vision um, being able to like run, you know, start a company that 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 works the way they want and does the thing they want, and that they benefit from, you know, cor- you know, commensurate to the uh, the level of risk that they put into it. But I, I think that sort of the system we have now, where you have the 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 people who are investors in these companies and like these tech companies. Um, and and just in general, like the way our system works, the people who are the the kind of capital owning class, the folks who actually own these stocks, which is a pretty small fraction of the American population, um, the profits they make put them in a position of extreme power over the rest of us, I feel. And not everyone exercises it, but a number do. Start there, right? Yeah. So I wrote a blog six, seven, eight years ago on blogmaverick.com where I said there should be a windfall profit tax. I got a windfall when I sold my company, right? And then I sold the stock that I got. I would have been happy to pay almost anything because I was like a pig in mud, right? I was happy as a clam. And that was the time to hit me. I've got no problem with the windfall profit tax, right? Some people would, right? I don't. Mm-hmm. My biggest concern is how do we use it? Yeah. And I, I think that is one of the areas where we're going to have more commonalities because I, I have some beliefs that are sort of ideological, but I also have some beliefs that are just like, yeah, we need to be spending less money on certain things and more money on certain things, and we're going to spend that money anyway, so let's work together to do it more intelligently. Yeah. Welcome to the worst year ever. We'll get through together or not. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I know Cody had one final question for you, and he he wants to know, who do you think killed Jeff Epstein? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, Uh, Tiger King. What's the guy's name? (laughs) Joe Exotic. (laughs) You sure it's not Carol Raskin? Because he knows. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't watched it. That's my goal tonight, to get on the Olympical and watch that. It's pretty wild. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, our, our home state, Texas, has more tigers uh, than live in the wild in the rest of the world. That's crazy. <laughs> I, had no- <laughs> yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. A lot of tiger owners in Texas. <laughs> Why is that a thing still? I agree there should be 100% tax on tiger purchases. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Put that on your platform in case you ever decide to run in, in America 2.0. I mainly, so uh, just a couple of things. I mainly, I was curious about, because like we've talked about healthcare a lot um, and your opinion of like Bernie Sanders' plan, Elizabeth Warren's plan. Um, you've criticized them both, obviously. It does seem like you don't support single payer, but you do want everyone to have healthcare while uh, like expanding Medicaid and, but maintaining a good capitalist system for healthcare in the middle. But I guess so recently in regards to the 3M situation, you've also said, uh, I get wanting to make millions of dollars, but people are dying. And I think for a lot of people, that's true any other time. It's not just true for the pandemic. And so how do you sort of reconcile those two ideas of maintaining a good, healthy capitalist system while knowing that any sort of system like that is going to tend to put profits over people and how that maybe shouldn't be how a healthcare system works when people are dying for the sake of, of millions of dollars. So if people are dying, unless there's some extraneous thing that's causing the death, right? It's typically through lack of access to a healthcare system. And so as you and I have talked very briefly, I put together when, when it looked like the Republicans were going to crush um, in the ACA, I asked myself, okay, if I needed to recreate a healthcare system, what would I do? And so I went to a far left economist and I said, you know what? My company and all the biggest, smartest companies I know self-insure. So in other words, we don't, we don't pay insurance premiums. We just cover the cost of our employees when they're ill. We have great programs. I mean, our people hate, you may hate working for me. They stay for the health care. Um, that's how good it is. And so I said, well, if we do it and all these smart companies do it, then why doesn't the United States of America self-insure? Why do we have insurance companies in the middle of this at all? And so I put together a program and I said, would you, w- would you score this like you were the government? And he came back and they said that if we did your plan, you'd have coverage for everybody for, under the, that would be eligible for the ACA, would be automatically be covered, and you'd save $60 billion a year. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then let's, if we have $60 billion to spend, let's change the parameters and instead of just doing a one-year projection, let's do a 15-year projection. And so I took it. I asked Zeke Emanuel and I asked others, who's the best at scoring healthcare proposals that will rip it apart and make it better? And so they sent me to the Rand Corp. And I said, here's what I want to do. I want to take a program where 
there's some level, some um, percentage of the federal poverty level below which healthcare is effectively free, right? So that people who can afford care have access to it. And the biggest challenge really is the states that don't have Medicaid. Because where there's good Medicaid programs, you don't see a lot of those issues unless it's a mental health-driven problem, right? Because there's they have access to care and they typically tend to get it. The VA kind of goes south a little bit, um, but you know it, it's those non-Medicaid states that really are real problems. But I said, okay, but let's start with 250% of the poverty level. And below that, it's effectively free. Above that, you don't start paying insurance premiums until you, you use the healthcare system. So if you're 27, 30, 35 and healthy, and you can afford to go to the doctor once a year and pay 60 or $80 or $150, whatever it may be, you don't, you don't get involved with this system at all. If you can't afford to do that, then, and you enter this, you pay, well, again, and, and you're making over 250% of the poverty level, which that number varies by the number of people in your family. But if you're making above that, then you don't, when you enter the system, you don't start paying until you use something. So, and then the payment is based off a of percentage of your income. So if I'm making, if I'm a single individual and I'm making $50,000 a year and I use, um, and I break my ankle and it costs me $1,000 and I can't afford to pay that $1,000. And so I'll pay no more than 3% of my income each month until that $1,000 is paid off. If I'm, I'm, if I'm in an unfortunate circumstance and I have lupus, I have just horrific things and my drug therapy is a million dollars a year, I pay the same 3% no matter what. And that becomes my premium. That now that I've entered the healthcare system, I'm now using this 10 plan is what it's called because nobody making under um, $500,000 pays more than 10% of their income. So that's my premium. That's what I pay. That's it. And so 250% and under, it's effectively single payer. Above that, if I'm making 50K, it's 3%. If I'm making 80K, it's probably it's 8%. If I'm making 200K or higher, it's 10%. That's it. And then the government eats the balance. And so when you do that, individuals, according to the RAM plan, save $63 billion a year. The government breaks even, but the important part is you've got Medicaid, you've got employer-based insurance, everybody else in the middle is covered. The problem with the ACA is out of the 45 or 46 million eligible people, 28 million are not covered. Under my plan, under the 10 plan, all 28 million people are covered and the government doesn't spend more. And employee and everybody that's in that ACA program equivalent, the 10 plan, saves $63 billion, which gives us the flexibility to say, all right, Maybe we charge a little bit more for those who enter the plan so that we can raise that bottom um, threshold from 250% to 400%, whatever the numbers allow us to do. But now, all of a sudden, if you're for open market, you're good. If, you're, if you really want everybody who needs care to get care, you're good, right? And in this environment, and after the reset, when we come on the other side, same thing, all those people who are LG, uh, ACA eligible, all of them are covered immediately. Starting the day after this passes, if you break your leg, if you get cancer, whatever it is, you're just paying your percentage based off your income. And if you don't have any income, we'll work with you to get into Medicaid. 
or you age out into Medicare. So, yeah, so this this tent plan you're referring to? Call it, yeah, just... Um, so it's sort of along those lines, because uh, let's say I make 30000 a year and I have that problem. Would you and I be able to go to the same doctor, basically? Because if you're separating into like this tent and this tent, uh, if no one is, if not everyone is paying into, then y- you would get the better care, I guess, is the point. You go to the best doctor in the world and you pay 3% of your income. Okay. okay. I see. Yeah. It's one of those things. I can potentially get on board with any plan that would mean that everyone walking in, everyone in America could walk into a doctor if they're worried they're sick and get treatment. Um, As long as it's also a situation where everyone in America can afford their insulin without it costing as much as rent or whatever other medication they need. Let's go there for a second, right? Sure. When you look at drug pricing, there, there are certain drugs that most of the single molecule drugs, and I'm not an expert here, so if I misspeak, you know, forgive me, but most of the single molecule drugs came from research that was done at the National Institute of Health. And when they discover something, they license it to somebody. And typically that person licenses it to somebody else. And you have this middleman effect until it gets to a big um, pharmaceutical company and they jack it up forever. Yeah. You can change the rules so that, um, Anything that originates from the NIH and give the NIH more money so they can originate more things and inhibit the, the cost of the drugs going downstream. There's also this thing called the called margin rights that it's been debated, but also allows the government right now for any of those drugs that originated from the NIH to reprice them. Now, because of the lobbying effects, that hasn't happened yet. But yeah, I agree with you. Well, there's an opportunity there. And with insulin. Because that's generic and it's off patent, one of my companies is looking at doing that. The problem is it's going to take three years to finish it. But you're going to see something where hopefully if everything goes according to plan and everything's upside down now, obviously, we're going to take a lot of drugs and sell them at cost plus 10%. And there'll always be that price. And I, I guess one of the issues I see in terms of actually making this happen, because I again, I support anything that's going to make it easier for regular people to get health care. But there is a a very, very wealthy industry that has made a lot of money and relies on being able to do things like triple uh, the cost of insulin over the course of 10 years, which is what happened with Eli Lilly when Alex Azar was in charge of it. Um, And those people, the individuals in them and the companies themselves are going to fight like hell to not have a situation that is less profitable for them. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I fuck them up. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I like like to hear that. Yeah, (laughs) that's a fight I'm happy to take on because that's where my platform comes in. It's not the arrogance of someone who's rich. It's somebody who has a TV show. Right. We've seen we've seen how much a reality TV show can benefit somebody. Um, We have. I have a platform that others may not have, but I also know how to compete. Right. So you're not going to hit every drug and solve every problem, but you can solve the insulin problem. What what I've learned is with this company, I started to address this. And again, I don't want to make any problem promises, but I'll give you an example. Um, is that once once a new company comes in, all the big guys try to buy it, and so we've already been offered a lot of money for the company that isn't even really selling anything yet, because they want to try to keep us out, and they know what we're trying to do. And most people say yes because why wouldn't they? I don't need their money. There's there's a drug called albendazole or something. It's for tapeworm, and there's there's an epidemic. I don't want to call it epidemic these days. There there's a 
significant spread of tapeworm in some of the rural communities of Alabama. And so we found a source. And again, all this could be upside down. Who knows, you know, what happens to our sources now. But if we're in, if, if we go back two months, the goal was um, to take this albedazole, and I know I'm saying it wrong, and it was selling for 200 bucks per um, per prescription. And and go, we can go out and we found the original manufacturer that created it. And we were buying it for $8 and selling it for nine. And we were going to give the initial 50,000 um, prescriptions away for free just to get our, get our arms around what was happening in rural Alabama. And so there's a lot of arbitrage opportunities that, we'll, that we're looking to take advantage of that people have always been bought out of. And the bigger point is that as bad as the pharmaceutical industry is with jacking up the price of drugs, every single drug goes off a patent at some point for the original drug. And so at some point, you can battle them across the board. Even when they play bad, bad company patent games, there's still ways to deal with it. And so that's the goal of what we're trying to create. And I don't want this to sound like, oh, it's the rich guy trying to solve everything. That's not the point at all. Where I'm fortunate is that I get a lot of smart people that reach out to me. Cody wants to talk politics. Other people want to talk medicine. And I invest in those companies. Right. And so that's what happens. It's not me thinking I can save the world. It's really, really smart people from all walks of life coming to me and say, would you give me a chance? Whether it's Arlen Hamilton and me investing in women of color, you know, mommy for baby products, ready, set, go for baby products. Just people who came to me and said, OK, give us a chance to do this. That happened here. And the dude was brilliant. Right. And happened to get it going. And it's his baby. I'm not running it. I'm not the, I'm not the brains behind it. I'm just supporting it. But I have all these unique opportunities available to me and that, you know, I can fund and hopefully they'll turn out to be something special. We've talked a lot about sort of the things that people of goodwill can try to do to fix this situation, your own personal solutions for the situation. And when I look at what we need to do to to fix a lot of the problems in this country, I can't escape from the fact that there are there is a fairly small group of people with an enormous amount of political influence as a result of their wealth who not only are behind sort of like you know when you talk about like the the jacking up of the price of insulin you know as high as it's gotten there's a there's a death toll associated with that when you talk about people who have taken advantage of the current pandemic and and monopolized supplies of uh or 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 you know gouged supp- medical supplies there's a, a death toll associated with that and a lot of people in that sort of group have lobbied and pushed for laws that have made it easier to do what they're doing. And I I get I, I don't I think it's risky to talk about punishment in a lot of cases, but I think at the minimum we need to talk about how do we stop those people from having this kind of influence. And I can't get away from um, a, a, a legislative remedy that there need to be changes in how, um, money can be used politically and also how it can be gained in the first place. Just get rid of Citizens United. Make yeah. political donations illegal. $5 or $5 million, get rid of them all, right? We don't, you know, it's crazy to me that I'm still getting emails from every, both parties, mm-hmm. from political candidates when that money, instead of that 5 or $20 going to a candidacy, should be going to help people who are, whose lives are turned upside down. Why give them to politicians? Give them to people who need it. Yet. Left or right, you haven't seen any politician say, you know what, don't give your money to me. Give your money to somebody who needs it. Not one. 
Right. So if you go back to Open Secrets and look at the last time I gave money to any political organization or candidate, I gave one to something called Unity 08 back in 2008, where they were going to try to create a new independent party. And I gave money to Zoe Lofgren and maybe Maria Cantwell in 1999 or 2000. That's it. I make a point of never giving money. When Obama was running and they were like, hey, can you come do this or this? I'm like, I'm not giving a penny. Not giving a penny, right? Because again, either my idea, my ideas stand up on their own merit and you're good and they're good, or you can ignore them. Now, they still might ask me to do something because of the Shark Tank thing and my visibility and all that, but you're not going to get a nickel out of me. And I think money is the root of all evil when it comes to politics. Yeah. Um, we got to wrap this up uh, and get this to our editor. Um, but I know Cody, since he has his audio back, there's a <laughs> question he wants to give you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just one real quick. Um, so kind of circling back to what we were talking about, uh, this this crisis is sort of equalizing a lot of things and uh, creating a lot of empathy between people. And uh, you talked about fear and how that is very common. Uh, with everybody, uh, whether it's for your loved ones or for what's going to happen to the economy and everything. Um, we also, uh, we just did uh, on some more news, a recent episode about sort of how a lot of the rich in the country are dealing with the situation and their sort of ability to kind of like fuck off if they want to, um, go, taking a tr private jet somewhere and just sort of living that life. So like the, the fear feels very different in a lot of the way people are handling it. Um, in a recent interview with Yahoo, you were asked about the, uh, the NBA and like the wealthy in general uh, seem to get coronavirus tests with great ease above the less fortunate. Um, for example, uh, the Brooklyn Nets arranged for their entire roster to be tested. Um, you said you didn't really know anything about that and that your team and people simply follow the process that's in place. Um, could you describe what that process is? And do you think it's the same process everyone else goes through? No, of course not. Right. I mean, I'm not trying to protect anybody. You know, the process was, are you showing symptoms? If you're showing symptoms, report them to the NBA and we'll deal with the doctor to help get you tested. The only way, the only thing I'd say to justify that, and I, I get your point that, you know, if, if I showed symptoms, chances are doctors would come running to me and do whatever I wanted. Right. I mean, you, if, you, if you don't have symptoms, you could probably call someone right now and get a test, right? I have no doubt that I could because people will kiss my ass. No doubt about it, right? <laughs> the one thing I will say in defense of the NBA, when you're a celebrity and you're very visible, people walk up to you and they put care behind, right? They don't care. They'll walk up to you and hug you. They'll walk up to you and, you know, shake your hand. I mean, my wife and I were taking a walk and people had to catch themselves to not walk up and say something. You know, social distancing is much harder in those circumstances mm -hmm. and people have much greater access to you typically. Now, remember, those tests were done early on. We're talking March 11th, right? When yeah. On one hand, they were harder to come by, which makes it a little bit more questionable. But on the other hand, people, there weren't the quarantines in place. And people were less aware and less likely to follow social distancing. So yeah. there is an argument to be made that that's why they got them. But generically, across the board, it's wrong, right? There's Because the reality is, from a social health, a, um, a public health perspective, people in the least, in the worst economic condition are going to be more crowded and, and more likely to have to go outdoors to try to just, you know, stay alive and more likely to get affected and more likely to be a spreader. And yeah. so you're not going to see me or anybody else try to take tests away from anybody. 
But you will see me and a lot of other people try, um, and you guys among them, everybody saying we need more tests and we need to get more people tested. And I will say, I mean, yeah, it's a dicey situation. You're right. There are less tests available and, and there's obviously an element of privilege and they're invisible getting these tests. But the NBA making the decision to suspend the season because players have been testing positive for coronavirus is what made this a reality for people. That is what sparked everybody to say, well, fuck, I got to stay home, you know? Get out of everybody. Scared everybody. That and Tom so, Hanks. That and Tom Hanks. And Tom but Hanks I would is. argue that uh, the NBA hit a little bit closer to home for a lot of people. Definitely. Um, yeah, it becomes but, real. But it is. Yeah. But it is. It is. You're right. It's 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 tough it's a tough situation um um we, yeah so we did uh we did already cover my last question about epstein um so i guess my final final question is uh can i have some money <laughs> uh give him a proposal Oh no! Oh, he oh, can't no, hear us. We now. lost Mark. He's oh, lost no. all of us. He, he oh, got to pay for better <laughs> internet over there. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your day to speak with us. This was really, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. 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 Thank you guys. I, I enjoyed it. I learned, and that—that's what I always look for. Awesome. And good luck, guys. I know, you know, your businesses. Just hoping iHeart keeps rolling, right? Yep. yep. Scary yeah, for everybody, yeah. you know. Yeah, we're doing okay right now. Yeah. yeah. But and, you know, and it's nice to have this connection with with people and to be able to yeah. be doing what we feel is important work. Are you guys going to apply for the small the payroll protection program loan? Yes. Don't look into it. Do it. Right. Okay. So let me tell you. Are we still rolling? Yeah. 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 But we don't have to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But do the math. Right. If there's three hundred fifty billion dollars allocated, and let's just say there's a million small businesses that want three hundred fifty k or more, the money's gone. Yeah. And there'll be other allocations, I'm sure of that, right? right? Because they have no choice. But be first in line. And Thank if you. you guys are contractors or no other contractors that are freelancers, you're eligible to apply, apply. Yeah. My ex runs an appliance repair business in Dallas, and I'm giving her the same advice. Like, get yeah. in there and do it. Like, yeah. Hell yes. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go right to the PPP program. They're not. They're not going to start. I was really hoping that I could push banks to start taking applications early because the difference between this and traditional SBA is that the banks will do all the approvals as opposed to waiting for the SBA to approve it. And so I was hoping banks would step up and be a, a lot quicker, but um, they weren't. So it looks like Friday will be the day. And for okay. you guys, for who you are and what you want to get out there, you need to be pushing banks. Because three weeks or two weeks for that $1,200 is too long. People are going to starve. And yeah. so whatever bank you deal with, like I pushed a couple of small Oklahoma banks and other little banks, wherever if people have bank accounts now and they, they've already direct deposited or, or um, direct debit for their tax payments or got refunds from taxes, um, have them go to their bank and really put pressure on those banks to give them overdraft protection. Overdraft yeah. doesn't cost them a lot, but those banks know that they're going to get the $1,200 check in two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Let's encourage anybody you know that listens to you or follows you to talk to their bank to try to encourage them. You guys encourage the banks that you work with to try to give mm -hmm. overdraft protection to people now because Great point. Day is brutal. That, that does make me 
really curious. Like one of the things you pointed out, like that $1,200 is not going to come in time for a lot of people. Rent is due now and a lot of folks just missed a paycheck or more than one paycheck. And there's talk of a rent strike going on right now. People saying like, if there's no assistance, how do you feel? What do you feel about a rent strike? Like what is your, yeah. You have a solution for the problem, right? If Mm $1,200, if if you're paying more than $1,200 for your own rent, right? You're in a different set of circumstances. But um, if that $1,200 is just about execution, so where, where's Bernie? Where's Bernie? Right? Where's Elizabeth? Where's every liberal progressive politician in office? And why aren't they pushing for this to get done yesterday? Why isn't that direct deposit already in people's accounts? Why haven't they worked out a deal with Western Union for them to pick up the cash and deal with Western Union to, get, to pay them back directly? Where is everybody saying anything? Well, you know, I, I, but I also feel like that releases a lot of kind of the onus on the folks who, number one, fought to like reduce what that kind of direct cash stimulus would be and have kind of worked to add in like means testing and stuff. I'm just saying the people that you would expect, the only reason I name those names is that's who you expect to be standing up for the little guy, right? I'm not quick to throw Elizabeth under the bus, as people, uh, listeners to this show know, but I agree. I've been uh, wondering where, where yeah, I, she's I, been last couple of weeks. I, I tend to think Bernie's every national vocal, figure yeah. should be focusing on how how can we get everyone's rent paid yeah. this month. I, yeah, I, think I that's... do too. Look, look, so don't deal with the symptom, deal with the problem, right? Mm-hmm. People don't have money. Rent is just one symptom. Like the utilities have been instructed not to turn sure. off utilities. Right. And they haven't. And so people haven't had their lights and gas and electricity turned off. That's all great. Right. Rent's a little different because it's to a private contract or a private company or whatever. But you solve that by offering overdraft protection. So why isn't Elizabeth in? And again, pick Marco Rubio. Why isn't Marco Rubio and Elizabeth <laughs> in the respective territories going to the banks and saying, offer overdraft protection? We'll make sure that that amount gets paid to so that people can pay the rent. Overdraft protection up to twelve hundred dollars for people's rent. Start today. Yeah. 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 I think we know why Marco Rubio isn't, but yeah. <laughs> Within that context though, if if these politicians left and right progressive and 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 centrist fail to do something like that and people are in a situation where either they just can't pay rent or they're going to be delaying rent payments and having multiple months of rent stack up where they're not earning income, like the what do you think about people striking on paying their rent if there's no action nationally? So, so now you create a different set of issues, right? Sure. Now there's a cascading problem for landlords and all their obligations. Sure. Yeah. And not all those people that are landlords are wealthy, right? It right. could have been grandma, right? So there's a cascading set. But on the other hand, if you look to create a solution that preempts all the I can't pay for this problems, right? So whether it's rent, it could be any number of different things, your car payment, it could be, you know, anything. You know, your cell phone. I can't work without my cell phone because I'm working at home. It could be your broadband, whatever it is, right? If you allow overdraft protection, if only up to the $1,200 that you already know you're going to be getting into your account, that allows you to solve the problem, the individual to have control over their life, to solve the problem they need to solve. While a rent strike sounds great, that's not everybody's problem. And so while you're helping some people who can't pay their rent, somebody else may have you know that not, may not be a problem. They're living at home, but they can't pay their they can't pay their broadband bill, right? Yeah, or they can't yeah. pay for their cell phone, and that's a different problem. So you need to get to the underpinning of the problem. And I tried to push this before they came out with this bill. 
just give everybody overdraft protection, right? Go ahead and do the check, write the transfer, do the transfer up to $1,200 amount. And it actually works better for the bank because they don't have to just write an advance to somebody, right? And that money flows down and cascades to, and the people who are, are most at risk get to use that as they deem appropriately, whereas a rent strike, everybody's screwed. And yeah. the other people who still might need to be solved, now you're dealing with the rent strike and not dealing with the, the root of the problem. I think we'd all agree with you that a rent strike isn't necessarily the solution and the real solution is a general strike, I think is what you were going to get at. I don't think that gets us there, but I, you know what? You want more money, now's the time to get more money. I want my money and I want it now, right? But you got you got to reduce the friction. So it's, the coffers are open. The, the, the government treasury is open. You, we can argue it shouldn't be open to everybody, but it pretty much is, right? We're spending yeah, trillions. Yeah. The yeah. only mission right now should be to reduce friction. Reduce yeah, friction, yeah. getting it from the people, the treasury, to the people who need it the most. And when you lift up the bottom, this is the one example where triple up economics will work right. But what we haven't heard from the people that we need to hear it from, right or left, center, whatever, is we need to execute on reducing that friction. Nobody's saying a damn word. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We really well, do have to wrap this up now. <laughs> sorry, we do. Uh, <laughs> it's a quick turnaround you. for us, yeah. but you are, you are wonderful. We really, we really yeah, appreciate you, it. You've been very generous with your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. That was great. Um, you can follow Mark on Twitter at mcuban, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram at Worst Year Pod. You can follow Katie at Katie Stoll on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow Cody at Dr. Mr. Cody on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow Robert on Twitter at I Write Okay. Uh, we have a tea public store, and wash your hands. Worst Year Ever is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.